The truth is not always at the bottom of a well. In fact, I believe that the truth is often at the surface of things. Hello, hello, welcome back to Sharing for its Table Talk. I'm your host, Rusty Baumgartner, and thank you so much for tuning into episode 2 of my little podcast. Today we will be going back to the beginning. The humble beginning of all things, or at least all things detective fiction. You will hear the story of the first detective ever, the man who started it all. Talking about that, I think I owe you an apology because I very uncaringly gave Sherlock Holmes the title of the Godfather in the last episode, and although he is the most famous one without a doubt, he was not the first detective, and therefore does not really deserve the title. No, sir. The true Godfather of all fictional detectives is the gentleman about whom we will be talking in today's episode. Excited yet? You should be. Another small disclaimer before we start, there's really not much biographical material about the detective himself here, and believe me, I did my research, so I thought about using this opportunity to talk a little bit more in depth about our detective's method of thought, and thereby take a deeper look at the first detective story ever written. This suits us well, because Dupin's method, and that is the man of the hour, also laid the path for all the methods the detectives in further episodes will use. I also plan on making a special episode somewhere in the future just about these methods, among which the famous signs of deduction, for example, can be found. But I will leave this open for now. The signs of deduction is the method that is so widely, but also falsely, cited and quoted in all detective stories and also in a lot of today's series. You cannot see it, but I wink at you, BBC's Sherlock. Why falsely? Well, for that you will have to listen to the episode, I'm afraid. Boom. Cliffhanger. Be warned, however. To do so, I will have to tell you about one of these stories in more detail to bring my points across better. Don't worry, it will be interesting and have worth, for it is the first detective story ever written, as I already said. But in case you want to read the story on your own, I can understand. And I will indicate when I start talking about it, so you're able to skip the part and just jump to the method discussion instead. Sounds fair? Okay, that is all. Now buckle up, because we will be traveling back to old Paris at the summer of 1840. Episode 2 of Sharing Ford's Table Talk. Auguste Dupin. C. Auguste Dupin is a character created by the master of suspense Edgar Allan Poe himself. By creating Dupin in 1841, Poe created the first fictional detective known to man. Don't be confused here, the story plays a year earlier, because publishing takes time. 
Dupin only appears in three stories, which are the murder in the Rue Morgue, the mysteries of Marie Roger, and the purloined letter. All the stories show the Poe-typical Gothic touch, and they include some interesting hidden symbolism here and there. For example, the stories are told from the perspective of an unknown narrator who befriends Dupin in a library in Paris. They meet because they both searched for the same rare volume of a book. This is the first instance of hidden symbolism, as the search for the rare book stands for the method of detection. Dupin is a so-called chevalier, which means that he is slash was a knight, or at least has the honorary title of knighthood. In agreement to that, he comes from a wealthy family, but because of several unknown events, his family has lost most of the money and Dupin now lives under more humble circumstances. He's not a professional detective. In fact, the word detective does not appear in the stories at all, because it was not developed yet. And Dupin is just some guy with a lot of free time. It is mentioned once, I think, that uh, he's a poet of some sort. But apart from that, he does not work. For another unknown reason, which could hang together with Dupin's former knighthood and the connections that could have come with that, he knows the police prefect G, from whom he hears about the murder cases, and he also knows a lot of uh, the other appearing characters of the stories personally as well. Interestingly, most of these characters that appear in the stories and uh, that hold somewhat a higher position are just mentioned by the first letter of their name, as if to respect their privacy. This, of course, does not make sense if they're fictional, but it could be, though, that they were indeed references to real characters to make Dupin seem real, just like Conan Doyle did it with Sherlock Holmes. So, this unknown narrator is very intrigued by Dupin and fascinated by his mind, and uh, he suggests that the two should move together because he feels that a guy like Dupin can give him a lot and he needs him close in his life. He even offers Dupin to pay the rent because he has more money than him. Dupin agrees. I mean, why wouldn't he? And they move to an old manor in Faubourg Saint-Germain. This district in Paris' 7th arrondissement has just developed from 1790 on into the new residence for France's highest nobility. So we can assume that the narrator is wealthy or they received some sort of reduction because of Dupin's stand. Whatever the case, they move in together and start to live a very oddish, bohème-like lifestyle that uh, once again plays into Poe's love for Gothic atmosphere. So, they live in this old French manor, and Dupin is a fan of the night. And uh, our narrator soon begins to adapt to this preference. So, the two only leave the house at night, and it goes so far that they even shut all the windows during the day, and then they sit at home with just two or three lit candles around them. When I think about this image, I cannot stop wondering how unhealthy that must have been and how pale the two were. But of course, there's more. 
Poe has hidden some meaning behind it. Dupin, overall, is a character of duality. On the one side, Dupin's love for nightly seclusion symbolizes his distance from the mainstream society, and it should show the reader that he is an unbiased, objective observer whose mind is not clouded by the common pleasures or social bindings. On the other hand, he is a worldly detective. And he's well-connected. He knows the Prefect G, he knows the Minister D, and he knows a lot of the other characters, as I said before. This duality of Dupin's persona is further confirmed by the hints of him combining traits like imagination and cold analysis, melancholia and enthusiasm, etc. Very similar dual traits can also be seen in Sherlock Holmes in that case. Anyhow... The two read most of the time, and uh, Dupin also shows his love for riddles and enigmas, and uh, he has a huge general knowledge, which is not surprising since he reads so much. His motivations to solve cases change through the stories. In the murders in the Rue Morgue, he hears from the murders through a newspaper article, and then he investigates the murders for his own personal amusement, and also to prove the innocence of a falsely accused man who he knows personally. In the end, he refuses a financial reward. However, in the purloined letter, Dupin purposefully pursues a financial reward, and he additionally has feelings of revenge against the Minister D, who is entangled in the case. When at the crime scene, though, Dupin totally sets emotions aside. He logically thinks about all aspects, and he has the unique way of taking the perspective of the murderer to gain an even lesser emotional and better logical view of the murders. So now we come to the part where I will sin and dive into the first detective story ever, in order to demonstrate Dupin's method, as I said before. So if you do not want to hear about the story, please jump to the method discussion chapter, and otherwise, here's the story of the murders in the Rue Morgue. The first detective story ever written. The story starts with a newspaper article, and we the readers learn all about the facts of the murder through these newspapers. It happened around 3 a.m., when eight or ten of the surrounding neighbors hear multiple screams and shrieks from a house in the Rue Morgue. The house belongs to a Madame L'Espanay and her daughter Mademoiselle Camille. When the neighbors arrive at the house, the doors are heavily locked, but with the help of a policeman, they are able to enter. During that time, the cries had stopped already, and the neighbors and the police rush through the house to see what's going on. They run from room to room, but cannot find anything, until they arrive at the fourth floor. There, they find a locked door with the key inside. They force the door open, and find an apartment that is in a wild disorder. It's a scene of pure horror, chaotic, with blood everywhere. The daughter, Mademoiselle Camille, is stuffed up the chimney feet first. She's covered in cuts and bruises, and shows signs of a brutal strangulation on her neck. The body of the mother, Madame Espanay, is found in the courtyard behind the house, with her throat so deeply cut that her head falls off when the police tries to pick up the body. She as well is covered in other cuts and bruises, 
and shows broken limbs and bones. Additionally, she had thick tresses of hair pulled out that lie beside her. The police find it impossible to determine how the body has found its way into the courtyard. They also wonder how the murderer escaped the scene since the apartment has been locked from within. Madame Lespanet has been seen withdrawing 4,000 francs in gold from her bank the same day, and these two bags are found in the middle of the chaotic apartment. Not one coin is missing. All the witnesses, the neighbors, agree that they heard two voices. One very shrill voice and another deep voice of a Frenchman. Among the witnesses are an Italian, an Englishman, a Spaniard, a Hollander and a Frenchman. The Englishman swears that the shrill high voice was speaking German, although he does not speak German. The Spaniard thought the voice was speaking English, although he does not speak English. The Italian believed it to be Russian, although he does not speak Russian, and so on. Auguste Dupin begins his investigation when he hears that an acquaintance of him, a Monsieur Lebon, who is the clerk from the bank where Madame Lespanet has withdrawn the money, is accused of the murders. He has been seen last with her because he has helped her to carry the bags home. Dupin is also very curious because the police labels the case as unsolvable and he wants to solve it for his amusement and also he does not believe in the abilities of the police. So, once again, here are the facts. The apartment was closed. The neighbors were at the front door. The apartment is on the fourth floor and all the windows were closed and locked as well from inside. So there was apparently no way out for the murderer. The story of the murders in the Rue Morgue introduces the first case of the murder in a closed room to the world. And as we all know, this has become an instant classic. So, Dupin and the narrator arrive at the building of the crime scene, and Dupin begins by walking around the whole house and investigating the nearby streets. Then they go into the apartment, where everything is left as it was. And while the police and the narrator are distracted by the gruesome scene, Dupin is very concentrated and seems to be gazing away in thought. We the readers do not hear anything about Dupin's investigations or his conclusions until the next days, when he suddenly out of the blue announces that he has solved the case and that he has invited the man responsible for it to the manor. Now he begins explaining... And he starts by saying that it was impossible for the murders to be done by the old lady, for example, um, who then apparently after the murders jumped out of the windows, because the witnesses heard voices that surely do not belong to the women. So someone else was in the room. So far, so good. One voice was high but unrecognizable, and the other was deep and the one of a Frenchman. He emphasizes the fact that the high voice was unrecognizable to the listeners. They could not sort it to any language they know of. Then Dupin goes on by stating that the murderer must have escaped through the windows since all other exits were blocked and the chimney was too small for any creature that would be capable of a murder like that. 
In Dupin's investigation of the apartment, he found that the windows were sliding windows and they were locked by a single nail on the side. Removing this nail and pushing a spring would let the windows jump open and then immediately shut themselves shortly after. So the murderer did not have to close the windows from the inside again. Trying all the windows, Dupin discovers that one window in the bedroom has a broken nail in it. And when its spring was pressed, it pushed open, moving the nail with it, and after closing, placing it back at its place, thus appearing as if locked, just like the other windows. Dupin states, What seemed to be not possible, we have proved to be possible. The murderer indeed escaped through that window. I could now see in my mind what had happened. Now the question that remained to be answered was, how did the murderer reach the window on the fourth floor? The policeman assured everyone that it was impossible to climb the house wall. Dupin, on his investigations of the streets, however, noticed a lighting rod that, when climbed up, would enable a creature of immense athletic agility to swing for the window. Dupin notices that no human being would be able to kill with such brutality because no human being would possess such strength. Then he summarizes that we have a murderer without a motive. He didn't take the money. The murderer has superhuman strength and agility and showed inhumane brutality and ferocity. Additionally, the murderer speaks in a voice everyone can hear as foreign, but no one is able to sort it to any language they know of. Then Dupin goes on to give us another clue by pointing to the hair that was drawn out of Madame L'Espanay. And here, even the narrator remarks that this does not seem to be human hair. Similarly, after drawing a sketch of the hand that would fit the marks on Mademoiselle Camille's neck, size and shape do not fit any human hand either. So, can you guess what happened? It is a pretty interesting story to demonstrate Dupin's methods, which are so representative for all the later methods the detectives use, and uh, the conclusion of the case was surely shocking at the time. But if you hear it for the first time, it's all pretty hilarious, for today's standards at least. So, ready? Here it comes. The hand was in fact a paw that belongs to an orang-utang. It was a monkey. A monkey killed them. Dupin then tells the narrator that he has sent for the sailor to whom the animal belongs. He knows of him and of the fact that he must be a sailor, because just a sailor would be able to bring a monkey from foreign lands and would be able to climb the lighting rod to be near enough so that the neighbors could have heard him yell at the monkey in French. You remember there was a second deep French voice of which they reported. So, this man shortly after arrives at the manor and he is in fact a sailor. Dupin forces him to tell them everything he knows, 
but also remarks that he knows that the owner is actually innocent. So the sailor tells them that he brought the animal from one of his journeys and he wanted to sell it. He had the genius plan to keep it in a closet for the time being, but one night, surprise, surprise, the animal escaped. It jumped through the conveniently open window onto the lighting rod and up the window of the Espanay apartment, which happened to be the neighbor's house and in which light was shining. The monkey was probably drawn to the light. Apparently, and that's even better, the animal had a razor in his hand. The sailor explains that the orang-utang must have seen him shave in the morning, found the razor on its escape and decided to play with it. The sailor tried to follow the animal but could only climb up the rod and not swing from the rod to the window as the monkey did. The animal was probably startled by the women's reaction to it and became violent. The sailor had to watch the whole gruesome scene from the outside. He tried to call the monkey back but was unsuccessful. So, the story ends with the sailor selling the orang-utang. Le Bon is released from custody and um, as the police hear about Dupin having solved the crime, they react with some resentment and they tell him to mind his own business in the future. When they left, Dupin counters with the words, let him talk, he'll feel better for it. And he's a good fella, but he makes things less simple than they really are. Still, people call him skillful and even wise. I think they say this because of the way he explains, carefully, fully. Something which is not here or there or anywhere and says not possible about something which is there before his eyes. Okay, that was the first detective story ever. And I have to say that as ridiculous as it sounds that a monkey is the killer, go ahead and Google Murders in the Rue Morgue Monkey. Some of these images are pretty scary and I think that Poe had a much more terrifying monkey in mind than the orang-utang we see in real life today. I think it was more of a Bigfoot or at least a mutated gorilla-orang-utang hybrid or something. Poe probably took the inspiration for the orang-utang from seeing the crowd's reaction at that time in a circus to the strange and foreign animal. And then he thought, hey, that's scary. Additionally, if I would chill in my home at night and suddenly a grown-up monkey of any size bigger than the little Aladdin ones would jump in through the window with a razor in its hand, I would be scared to death. So the whole thing is totally grotesque, ridiculous and horrible at the same time. What's also grotesque is that Poe was paid an additional $56 for the story, which is nothing. But in earlier times, that was apparently an unusually high figure because he was only paid $9 for The Raven, for example, with which he had much more success. Anyway, let's come back to the method discussion. How did Dupin reach his conclusion? How does he think? Let's take a step-by-step in-depth look. 
Edgar Allan Poe called Dupin's method ratiocination. That is a synonym for reasoning, conscious deliberate inference, or the activity or process of reasoning. The term comes from John Stuart Mill's work A System of Logic, Ratiocinative and Inductive, in which Mills distinguished induction from ratiocination and developed five principles of inductive reasoning now known as Mills methods. This method emphasizes the importance of reading. In the story of the Rue Morgue, the newspaper article piques Dupin's curiosity, and he also learned about orang-outangs from a written account by Cuvier, who is likely Georges Cuvier, who was a French zoologist. The reader is engaged through following along by reading the clues himself. So, it all starts with the fact that the police, first of all, is absolutely clueless. And, as it is often the case in later detective stories, they jump to the easiest conclusion, which is neither the most logical nor the most fitting one. In the murders in the Rue Morgue, they immediately go on to arresting Monsieur Le Bon, just because he works at the bank where Madame L'Espanier has been seen last. They don't worry about his motive or how he could have escaped, they are just happy that they have someone to blame. Dupin is the total opposite. He represents the look at the big picture. His mind works by mixing intuition with logic. For him, logical thinking is just like speaking a language would be for a native speaker in comparison to foreigners. So, he reads the newspapers carefully and sucks in all the information that he sees as relevant and puts it into connection with the knowledge he has obtained from elsewhere. All of that happens effortlessly. When reading the news of the murder, he naturally sees the missing logical connections in the statement. He exclaims, The conclusion here is absurd. It is a mere guess, a very silly one, and no more. This way of thinking in pure logical streams leads him to look for information of all kind. He regards everything as important first and separates the useful from the unuseful later. This way, he begins to investigate the area surrounding the house in the Rue Morgue, an activity the narrator cannot understand. He says to this, Dupin, meanwhile, examining the whole neighborhood as well as the house with a minuteness of attention for which I could see no possible object. Dupin, meanwhile, has saved all the information and now he connects it with the opinions of the police on everything. There, it helps him big time that he believes them to be certainly wrong, and now he has to put in the effort to disprove their opinion. When he hears about the impossibility of reaching the window on the fourth floor, he thinks about a way with which it could be made possible. Thereby, he notices the importance of the lighting rod. He saves this information for the investigation of the inside. With the thought in his head that there is a slight possibility of reaching the window, he looks around the apartment and searches for clues that would say otherwise. He has also thought about the possibility of the women having committed suicide or of them having killed each other. What stands against this hypothesis for the moment were the reported voices by the neighbors. 
Even if this shrill voice would have belonged to one of the women, there was a deep French voice nearby. So, when entering the apartment, he is already working for and against certain hypotheses in his mind. After a careful investigation of the rooms, he concludes first of all that there is no other way out for the murderer. That is especially true when bringing in the fact that only a bigger creature could have killed these women, and a bigger creature is even less likely to escape any other way. Secondly, after inspecting the bodies and the apartment, he sees the impossibility of the theories on suicide and reciprocal killings. Madame L'Espagnet did not have the strength to stuff the daughter in the chimney, and she could not have committed suicide because of the cut on her throat. How would she have reached the courtyard then? Furthermore, who belonged to the voices the neighbors reported? The women were not alone. Someone was with them. Someone with immense strength. Someone who could only have come through the windows. So, Dupin looked for a way to transform the windows into a possible entrance and escape route. He finds out that the windows close by themselves, and then he discovers the window with the broken nail. And now his hypothesis has support. Now he starts to put all the facts of the murder together and tries to fit it to a creature he knows would be able to do all this. Thereby, he remembers the orang-utang of which he has read before. He has already put the human murderer aside because of the entrance and escape situation and the strength necessary for the murder. So he just needs further support for the orang-utang. The only one that he has so far is the fitting brutality of the murders and the entrance and escape possibility for an animal like that. He eventually finds the hair of the beast and looks at the marks on Mademoiselle Camille's neck. From there he draws a sketch and bam! He has the necessary support for the orang-utang theory. He has found the most probable solution based on the evidence. Now all that is left is the question on how does an orang-utang come to Paris. There must be an owner of some sort. Dupin admits that the idea of the sailor remains a guess even for him, and he just starts by searching for his sailor through the newspapers. He is lucky, and everything falls into place. I think if no one would have reacted, Dupin would have probably gone on to search for a circus artist or someone similar that would fit his profile about the owner. All of these thoughts are made possible by the fact that Dupin for once trusts his thinking process, and secondly, he is not distracted by external influences. He gazes away in thought at the murder scene. Who cares about the brutality? It is not of value, just a logical fact that needs to be put into the thinking pattern when needed. Dupin, in contrast to Sherlock Holmes here, is much more fictional and unrealistic. Whereas Holmes has put more effort and lifetime into forming his nature-given skills into a habit and into a scientific process, Dupin just switches from thinking machine to poet to man with connections effortlessly when necessary, and I for myself would label this as much less humanly possible.
But that's just my humble opinion. And never forget, I am a Holmes fan. A big one. And for me, one question remains. And that is the one, how did Dupin conclude that the Orang Utang has a knife? I mean, he must have seen the cut, the deep cut on Madame L'Espagne's throat. How did he put this information into everything else? Because even if you have the conclusion of, okay, it was a monkey, how did the monkey cut a woman? And you would never guess. I mean, not in the wildest dream that, I mean, it's so far-fetched to say, okay, maybe the monkey had a knife. I mean, a far more logical explanation would have been, okay, I've uh, pretty much solved everything and I have evidence for everything, or at least I have clues that support my hypothesis, but now there's this cut. And my hypothesis is based on the fact that it was a monkey, an orangutan. So can an orangutan cut a human being's throat? I don't think so. Hmm, maybe my hypothesis is wrong. How did he, how did he, did he just ignore that? I mean, it's just a fact they don't clear up in the story. But okay, okay, rant is over. Um, you have to appreciate the story for what it is. It is a great mystery. It was the first time that you have this concept of this analytically thinking, mind-driven uh, detective or or. or You know, just the concept of the big thinker versus the system of policemen who are in their routine, but they're not really, they don't do careful work. And he has method in his, in his approach to this case, and he just outsmarts them, he outthinks them, and then in the end, he doesn't get credit for it. He just earns resentment from the police, and they're like, okay, maybe you were lucky this time, but next time, just don't, don't help us. And it's exactly the same reaction a lot of the other detectives receive from the arrogant policeman or the arrogant inspector in the beginning until they've reached some kind of fame and they have a much harder way to prove themselves. And it is a little bit unfair by me to compare Sherlock Holmes to Auguste Dupin because first of all, Sherlock Holmes owes a lot of his character traits and how he handles things to Dupin, and he appears in 60 stories, so there's much more character development. Dupin just appeared in three stories, and um, the stories are heavily focused on uh, the analytical thinking, and uh, that it's a great mystery, and that it's a great reveal. So there's much less storytelling about the character. And uh, I think Dupin is pretty much the last detective um, about whom we do not have so much biographical material. So um, there will be more in the next episode. I can also highly recommend you to look into the other stories. I mean, about the purloined letter, Edgar Allan Poe himself wrote in a letter to his friend that it's probably his best story about ratiocination. So I didn't pick this story uh, because I didn't want to uh, give too much away to you guys. You can still read the story by yourself now. And it is a better story. Like, the reveal is not as stupid. It's a totally different topic. 
Um, and the murders in uh, the mysteries of Marie Roger, that's the name of the story, is also much better, much more realistic, much more, uh, you know, like the detective stories we know today. So if you have time, give them a read. They're good stories. And a little bit about the podcast in general. Right now, I know that my sound quality is not the best one. There are ups and downs and there are a lot of, there's still a lot of noise I try to filter out the most, but I will get better equipment as well as what I want to say. And um, I'm also still about to find my flow overall. So I'm still figuring out what to put in into the episode, what to leave out, how I um, basically manage my talk. So I can promise you it will get better. You know how it is. It's a it's a working process. And um, I can just assure you I have a lot of fun with the episodes. And I plan on keeping doing it. So, yeah. Thank you very much for listening to the episode. And uh, I hope you all tune in for the next ones. Thank you. <laughs>